0: Welcome to this episode of Inside Publishing, the series where we interview industry experts on everything publishing. Imogen here, Communications Officer for SYP North. I'm really excited to be speaking to Adam Lowe from People Tree Press and Dogon Publishing. Adam is an award-winning author, publisher and educator from Leeds who is now based in Manchester. He works as the UK LGBT History Month Poet Laureate. And as People Tree's publicity officer, we chat about Adam's story with People Tree, the publishing landscape following height of the Black Lives Matter movement, and promoting the arts in the North. Hi, how are you, Adam?
1: Hi, Imogen. I'm great. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much for um, joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. To start off, I'd like to pick your brains a little bit um, and dive into yeah. your story with People Tree Press. For our followers unfamiliar with People Tree, could you give a little insight into the publisher's mission and maybe how you got involved with their work?
1: Yeah, so I joined People Tree officially in May 2010, so it's a long time ago now. Mm. Um, and it was it was a program that the Arts Council were running to get more uh, Black and Asian and disabled staff members into arts management positions basically um so there are a few organizations involved there was um Opera North I think there was Carla Sangam and there was People Tree um and there might have been there might have been one other like Phoenix Dance Company or something and yeah they were kind of looking for someone to come in and and help with the marketing um and I just saw the the opportunity and I I kind of went for it I'd already had a relationship with People Tree for a few years because. When I was um, at university and I was writing a novel, I uh, I, I met a friend of a friend who was in publishing. He worked at Penguin, and we were just in like a, a a gay club. And you know, I remember telling him when I was drunk about this book that I was writing, and he said, "Oh well, why don't you have a look for People Tree Press because they're local to you." So I kind of Googled People Tree Press and ended up finding out that they have a writer development program called Inscribe, and got in touch with someone there called. Khadija George, who is um, one of the co-directors of InScribe. And they invited me to come and join some of their workshops, which must have been about 2008, 2009. So I'd already had a bit of a relationship with them. I went on a few writing residentials. Um, I was part of their Young InScribe cohort. So that was young writers in Yorkshire that they were mentoring of uh, African and Asian descent. And there were some really great writers involved, like uh, Zodwin Ione. And we, yeah, we, we, we built up a bit of a relationship then with the, with the press. I remember that when we did Avon for our residential, they, at the end of the album, people would make like a little kind of pamphlet anthology thing which had some examples of everybody's work from the course and you'd normally just kind of staple that together and uh and and do it all by hand and then everyone would have something to take home with them but me being a budding publisher already at that age I kind of designed everything made it kind of look a little bit more interesting with what we wanted to do it was all in black and white we didn't really have any pictures so I just used interesting fonts and basically like windings, but posh Um to basically make it look you know a little bit more interesting and that was really really nice I think and they were impressed by that they'd been impressed by my engagement with the program they knew already that I was doing stuff through dog Home, which I kind of started doing from 2007 so I think all those things meant that when I went for the interview straight away they you know they had a good sense about me and they could tell that I fit into that organization they could tell that I was a self-starter that I kind of taught myself a lot but at the same time I was really hungry to learn um and I did I learned loads from working with People Tree. like the amount that I've kind of taught myself it was all how to make the the limited tools that I had work so that I could do something that approximated a professional, you know, quality publication, and it was it was very tricky because I was doing stuff with free software and the software wasn't really designed for the things that I was doing, and I was trying to do everything without any money or any budget. But once I got to People Tree, you know, and there, it, there was no longer that. Desperate kind of hustle. It meant that you could then learn all the really important things that you just don't know about. You know how to effectively do things on on Nielsen. Like I'd obviously put books into Nielsen myself, but but we did it. You know, in a much more methodical way at People Tree. I learned how to do a proper advanced information sheet. Um, it was just little things like playing around on InDesign which I'd never done before, because I couldn't afford that as an individual. So I really noticed that even within just a short period of a few months, I actually became much, much better at the things that I was, you know, supposed to be Mm. supposed to be doing. So working with a publisher, even for a short period of time, was really, really valuable in in, in getting me those skills. And I was only supposed to be there for nine months, three days a week. But Obviously, I'm still here 12 years later. So they obviously liked me and they obviously thought I could contribute to the team. Um, My title has shifted a little bit over the years. So now I'm Publicity Officer, which basically means I do things like the newsletter, updating the website, doing the social media. I help a lot of the authors when we've got events coming up. I help organise the events, kind of talk the authors through what's going to happen with their book. A lot of first-time authors can be quite sort of anxious. They don't know what's going to happen. They come in, they've got all these expectations. So I kind of do a session, which is expectation setting with them. You know, first of all, you have to temper some of those expectations. Yeah. um, Because you're not going to turn into JK Rowling overnight. Well, most people are not. Um, And then, you know, you need to think about how how they can make a living as a writer, Uh, from their own work. And obviously I'm well-placed to kind of talk about that because I'm a writer myself. So, you know, I usually talk them through how you can do workshops and appearances at festivals and things like that. And all of these things together can help you kind of build a portfolio career where you can kind of sustain yourself from your writing and the things related to it rather than having to, I don't know, take a job that you really, really hate and then try to squeeze in the writing on the side. So that's kind of what my role is now. I do a little bit less of the marketing stuff. I still sometimes do that, um, but some of that has now been taken on by Impress, who are, are yeah marketing and sales reps. So they do things like the advanced information sheets. They do things like contacting all the bookshops so that we don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. We don't really have to update Nielsen as often now either because of the the tools that we've got through Impress. So I've kind of shifted more to the, uh, to the publicity side, which, to be honest, I prefer anyway because the... The kind of the marketing stuff can be a bit drier. The kind of bibliographic databases, Mm. you know, that sort of stuff is not as interesting as the actual engaging with the artists, engaging with venues and festivals and partners, coordinating those things, and then putting things on the the website and on social media that looks creative and interesting and and where I get to flex my literary muscles a little bit, you know, with writing and things. Those are the things I really enjoy
0: cool um would you say that the sort of size of the entity people tree allows you to sort of make it more author focused and be able to sort of i guess take risks that you might not necessarily be able to in a larger company or a more corporate publisher absolutely
1: and that's not to say that we uh, that we don't make money because we do actually We, you know our book sales are quite um, are quite healthy, and some of our books are very, very successful indeed. But I think because we are not, uh, we don't have the same model as the bigger publishers, which is kind of throw everything at the wall and then see what sticks. And you know, they'll um, they'll they'll go for lots of things based on fads. So they might think, oh, well, yeah. this thing is in now, so this is popular. We're going to take a load of these writers because they're popular at the minute. And then as soon as they're not popular, they move on to the next thing. What we find is a lot of writers who are kind of in the middle of their career or they've had one or two books already with a bigger publisher then come to us and i think that's partly because of the different relationship we can offer as opposed to a bigger publisher yeah because there's there's two full time members of staff at people tree and then a bunch of people who are kind of part time we are much smaller we are limited in the things that we that we can publish but also we're we're freed up in that we don't need to commit huge budgets to you know loads of books that potentially might not sell very well as you may have noticed there was the um case in america where you had simon and Schuster and penguin random house uh, and it was about the merger and there were some really interesting facts that came out in there which is things like yeah. some books only sell like 12 copies and things and a lot of people were quite surprised by that i mean me as a sort of person who set up an indie press and and kind of did things myself with no budget that doesn't surprise me at all because I know some books that are really really good books and have really struggled to sell more than a few dozen copies and some books where authors you know haven't done very much or where sometimes things have just not landed at the right time or there've been issues so I can completely believe that some books only sell 12 copies and in a way that's heartening that that happens for the big publishers as well but i guess yeah, if you're definitely. a bigger publisher and you're spending millions of pounds on all these books and um, there's a big chunk of them that are barely making any of it back that that kind of condenses your focus a little bit and it means that you would almost be more ruthless and so you are going to laser focus on the people who get you that money that enable yeah. that model to you whereas we're not as driven by the profits uh cost the not as big we can be more nimble and agile we can we can respond to things you know on much shorter notice so when we pick a book it's because we love it like we want it to sell we really hope that our infection for the book passes on to other people but even if that book only sells a few hundred copies we're we're kind of happy with that if the book has kind of done the best that it can and we've supported the author as much as we can we kind of think that that's okay and there's very, very, very few books that we actually take out of print. So we will leave those books in print, even if we don't think they're huge sellers. Whereas a lot of bigger publishers, you know, if you're not selling a certain amount, they just take it out of print and that's it, you know? And then then that author is kind of left adrift, as it were. So yeah, as I say, a lot of writers that have gone with bigger publishers have come back to us afterwards and, and have said, you know, what I value is that uh a the priorities are different you know we're not demanding that they sell thousands of copies to to keep them on our lists but it does mean they also get more of the same things like cover design Mm -hmm. how we market it in even just in little things like in terms of the editing um Jeremy's very very hands-on but he does Mm -hmm. a lot of I would say a lot of mentoring as well in terms of the editing that he does. So he's quite known for having lots of one-to-ones with the writers, getting them in, helping coach them over a longer period of time. Some of the books have been in the work for five years, 10 years, you know, because we want to, yeah, because we want to invest in authors, not in the final book so somebody might come to us with an early idea and it might evolve it might change and you know we won't give them a contract for example until the book is ready but we will we will work with them and we'll we'll have them come back and part of that is through the inscribe program where they get mentored and developed but part of that is just jeremy meeting people having a nice chat with them and steering them and you know he sends me books as well sometimes so especially when it's more in my area of expertise the, there are a few authors um, who have been a little bit before the stage where they go to Jeremy, for example, then I might look at some of their manuscripts and say, all right, this is what I think you need to do. These are the tweaks I think you should make. And then we can get them to a stage where we feel more confident working with them. And that, that to me, is one of the nice things that we can do, that bigger publisher can.
0: Yeah, it really seems that you're really hands-on and, like, nurturing with the authors. Um I guess that yeah, be I part of the reason why you hear so many stories about books that have been snapped up by indie publishers, but larger ones won't even consider. For example, um, like Monique Ruffey. Um, yeah. Monique, you
1: know, they all turned it down, they all turned down the middle black Punch And then we got it. Then it won loads of prizes, it won the Costa prize, you know. And then they were clamoring for it, they were desperate for it then. So I think we, you know, we normally go in with a book. Printing maybe 500 copies to start with and then topping those copies up 100 at a time because you get very good rates. We've been using Imprint Digital, who are really good um, kind of publish uh, printers, sorry, that do very decent pricing so that has allowed us to be quite dynamic in how we do things mm. and sometimes if we think a book needs more copies we print more copies but then with Monique's we suddenly had this d- demand for like 20,000 copies you know and we were we, we kind of got that done really really quickly but but thankfully we don't need to do that for every book because I think if we did to keep those costs down per unit if we had to kind of publish twenty thousand for everything. We probably would be more selective because the last thing you want to do is pull a load of books or you know warehouse them when they're not when they're not moving, and it puts a lot of pressure on it. It might make the copy of the books you know a pound each printing twenty thousand of them maybe, but is it really worth it if you're then going to have nineteen thousand of them sitting around that are unsold? It might make more sense to print 500 at a time and pay two, two pounds a copy, you know, and then we print them at 100 at a time rather than, yeah, bind up all that capital in kind of warehousing and then trying to move things around, make space for things, trying to get books pulped if if they don't go anywhere. So that's very much against the model that we that we yeah. like to use.
0: Yeah, it's a it's just a really sad thing, isn't it? Just seeing books that don't go to a living
1: home. Yeah. It really is. And, you know, especially when you're learning that even bigger publishers are selling only 12 copies of a book. And so if they've printed 20,000 copies, that's 19,988 copies. What's happened to those? You know, what I mean, I imagine they all have maybe got 30, 50 of those. Um, But where have the rest gone? You know, some over 19,000 of them will have been pumped. Mm. Uh, And that's a real shame, I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. Jumping off that, and like the idea of selecting your authors, um, Peopletree have like a really wonderful catalogue of Caribbean literature from across the region, but also across the diaspora throughout the UK. And there's so many acclaimed authors, like Monique how we mentioned, Kwame Dawes, Leoni Ross, and Time has really shown that you're really welcoming to a whole range of different voices. How, how do you sort of curate your list? What are the priorities for when you're trying to take on a new author?
1: Yeah, so I think, um, I think we want to know that the author themselves is, you know, worth the investment, I guess. And we... We are optimists, so we we try to support, you know, even if you send us something and it is not perfect, if we can recognise that there is potential, we can recognise that there is talent, then we might engage with you anyway, you know, in order to get you to that stage. We, we like people who are committed to their writing. We like people who are willing to take risks. We like people who... Yeah, just passionate really about about the writing that they do. And we, we, we like things that surprise us, but we do have quite diverse tastes, I think. Um so Jeremy ultimately decides about everything, but we have got an associate fiction editor who's Jacob Ross, who's himself an award winning writer, and an associate poetry editor, Kwame Dawes, who is himself an award winning writer. And and they obviously make recommendations as well in their respective fields so in fiction and in poetry and they will say these are the books from the kind of the slush pile that we think we want to uh, take forward. Obviously we get way more books than we can actually respond to in a decent time. One thing that most people don't realize about indie publishers is that we don't have someone who is just who's just got the job of going through the slush pile. So if people are reading it, we're reading them on our day off. So we're reading them on a plane ride to the Caribbean because we've got a festival that we need to attend. We're reading them on a train journey, going down to London to do someone's event. You know, we might take them home on our annual leave and read things there. And I think when you put it into perspective in that in that sense, and everything does have to eventually go through to Jeremy, people can get a more realistic expectation of what's happening. And I think most independent publishers are pretty much the same. Most small presses, you know, we're, we're all wearing multiple hats. Yeah. You might have a role as you do one thing, but actually, you know, as I've said, my, I'm publicity, but at the same time, I'm doing writer development and mentoring, and I'm doing things like um, almost onboarding for the for the writers who come. So I'm, you know, I'm introducing them to the process, telling them what's happening. There's lots of different things that we do. I do the graphic. I do some of the graphic design for like flyers and posters and social media things, and I've got a lot of leeway to do that. But also that's because that's the way it has to be, because it's very difficult to micromanage when you're also stressed anyway, I guess. Um, it's a
0: lot to think about and to have like keep a grasp in your head at the same time. It
1: is, exactly. There's a lot to do. And so sometimes it means, you know, things things um end up getting delayed or or the little, you know, mistakes that happen because You know, we don't have a team of 20 people um, that we can dedicate to the book. But I would say that we are definitely producing books that are at the same standard as the major publishers, but in which the authors feel more valued, that they've had a greater contribution, a greater input. You know, little things like actually printing in smaller amounts means that if a book goes to print and we notice that there is a major error that someone has missed, then we can fix that you know I've, I've read books from major publishers that are on their third or fourth printing and they've still got typos in them you know it happens yeah. with all of those bigger presses but because you know they have to sell 20,000 copies before they print the next one, they it, it, there's no priority for them to kind of fix those little typos in the interim whereas we can do that we can we can change covers sometimes we've we've done that before where printed a book with one cover the author and us have decided actually we're not sold on that cover now and then we'll you know the next printing will have a different cover it allows us to be a lot more flexible Mm -hmm. and the other thing is because we can work across those different areas of the business it does give you a, a an overview perhaps that you wouldn't have if you're working in a silo you know, so I know what Jeremy's doing. Jeremy knows what Andrew. We've we've all done little bits of each other's work over the years, um, which means that we've you know we've we've learned and we can appreciate what we're all doing and we're all very kind of clued in so someone emails me and says what's the waiting time on publications you know I can give them a realistic I can give them a realistic answer because I know what work Jeremy's doing and I've done some of that work myself perhaps so it allows me to kind of see those things and then it it makes it easier to guide authors through that process as well I think
0: Mm, it sounds like um it really sort of like fills in the gaps whenever like in terms of the team that everyone has its sort of background knowledge or like exactly. a broad understanding of everything so it can exactly kind of
1: i think it also means that we are all valued as kind of you know equals like so
0: mm. we have
1: a weekly meeting every every friday usually at midday and, you know, if we can join it, we, we join it. If we can't, we can't. But we all go and have a little catch-up with each other, a little check-in via Zoom, because most of us work from home. And, you know, we can all express our opinions and get involved in things. Um, when we're doing decision-making, you know, we have, we've all got to say, we can have an input and we have a, a, a discussion. And obviously, you know, when it comes to editorial, Jeremy makes the final decision there. Uh, when it comes to business stuff, it's usually Hannah. That makes that decision because she's the kind of a head honcho, really, in, in terms of managing everything and everyone and paying all the bills and stuff. But you know, we 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 can always contribute to that process. We can always say, actually, I think this is a bad idea, or I think this would be a good idea. And those things have been listened to, and we are given a lot of leeway and independence to kind of work the way that we want to it feels like we've we've been trusted you know we've been trusted to do the things that we're able to do
0: yeah that definitely seems like a really strong benefit of working in a, in a smaller press
1: i agree and i think working with a bigger press you might not necessarily get that same um that same level of input at all levels because you might have a marketing meeting just for the marketing team but you might not necessarily be able to you know sit down with the editors in the same way and have a discussion with about what they're doing or talk about the general direction of the organization and that can lead to issues you know i know a lot of black editors a lot of black publishers who they're in organizations that are doing a lot of good work but it's still not right it's still not doing enough for them it's still not meeting their needs in lots of different ways and they get quite frustrated with that whereas i feel almost spoiled because you know on our board as it were among all the people that work people tree there's two white members of staff they're outnumbered massively and like we get to decide on the things that are important to us which is really great because it means you just avoid all of that stuff to begin with You know, when Black Lives Matter happened, we were asked, like, do you guys want to write anything? Do you guys want to say anything? What should we, you know, how should we respond? And actually our feeling was because we are so political and we're engaged all year round and we feel that we are championing, you know, Black and Asian voices all the time, we felt that we didn't actually need to do anything. And we felt, do you know what? Sometimes it's really exhausting, like having to educate other people about racism Mm. when they could just go out and Google it. So, you know, for me, it's really important that People Tree lives its values. And I think that that's something that we do. Um, and that's something that obviously is reflected in every step of the publishing process. So, for example, you know, during Black Lives Matter, we felt that, um, you know, we were uh, we asked the black members of staff. So that there's only two members of staff that are. Um, that are white but um, Jeremy and Hannah asked us what we wanted to do and we felt that this was actually the perfect time for us to not say anything because we were so used to being politically engaged and politically active and having those conversations anywhere that we felt that now that people were going out and having those conversations on their own and they were learning those things uh, themselves that actually it was it was the one time that we as, you know, black publishers and black writers didn't have to do that education. We didn't have to be the ones to deliver that information, which in itself, you know, is very draining, requires a lot of energy and a lot of emotional resources. And we thought, well, if everyone else is already doing it, they're already looking at it. Actually, now is the time that we get to sit back and look after ourselves. And that's really, really important. And I think that's one of the values of having an organisation that is black-led, um, you know, where we are in the minor, majority, sorry, so that we can have policies and ways of working that work for us. We don't have to go clapping in hand to anyone else and um, ask them to change it for us. And that's really important as well for our writers, I think, because there's lots of little things, lots of little niggles or little microaggressions, for example, that they might feel that they have to put up with with a sort of a mainstream publisher let's say there is something about that about not having to fight and not having to explain that can be a a huge relief to a lot of people I think
0: yeah it takes a lot of mental energy to be constantly like fighting those fights
1: exactly and I think we don't often know how much energy it uses up until we no longer have to do it and we're like oh wow isn't Mm. this actually really refreshing and the other thing that people should benefits from as an independent press you know we're not based in london we don't have to commit ourselves to that london way of living where you're running around you know working a million hours a week and, and stressing yourself out to pay unrealistic bills like mm-hmm. we've never had to take part in that kind of toxic work culture and i think that that's really important as well we we have often been quite creative in the ways that we you know, make the business work. So for example, we used to run printing press and we would do print jobs for other people that allowed us to do the publishing that we really wanted to do. That yeah. was really interesting time. That was before I joined People Tree, but obviously I've heard all the stories. So we had our own printing press downstairs that required people to stand on it in the right time so that it would work. And you know, you had to guillotine the paper yourself with a massive big scythe like uh implement uh, and they used to do print jobs for uh you know bookies there was there there was a bookie that would come in every sort of friday place their order for saturday morning so that when people went to the races the next morning they had all these freshly printed books um you know they would do something like that late at night so that they could then pay for all of the uh, all of the creative stuff that they that they wanted to do and you know we've we've that was how dedicated we were. But obviously we don't need to do that now, partly because we've got our Arts Council funding to do that, meant that we no longer had to print people's books. Um, but it also, mm. it, it meant that it gave us that space to kind of step away from that, that model of, of business that everybody's forced into, where, you know, it's all about making enough profit to be able to keep doing what you're doing. And it does give us breathing space and it allows us to focus on the things that... Um, that a commercial publisher might not be able to do in the same way so a big chunk of the funding that we get is for our inscribed program so the mentoring yeah. of of writers and those are typically um british writers um importantly so british writers of black and asian descent who you know who who are not very well served often by bigger publishers um and that that is something that's really important. It's very resource intensive, but there's not huge profits at it unless you want to charge £800 for people to take yeah. part in a car, which is what a lot of the big publishers do. You know, mm. For us, we don't do that. A lot of our things are either free or low cost. And if you're known to us, if you're a member of Inscribe, um, then they're even lower cost. Even our writing residentials are quite low cost. And that's all because we've got that breathing space from the Arts Council.
0: Yeah, reflecting on, like, the Arts Council funding and your sort of placement in the North, what impact have you seen sort of on the opportunities and, like, growth in terms of, like, the communities that you serve?
1: Yeah, well, there's definitely been uh, a, a push. Obviously, there's a levelling up agenda, um, which, you know, sometimes I'm a bit sceptical of mm. in general um, because that can be a political tool to kind of a bribe the so-called red wall you know so we'll we'll give you money if you got Tory next next election kind of thing but i have to say that the arts council i think has done a good job of kind of managing political need with actually artistic need um so what we've seen for example is that rather than continue the model where it's London, who gets everything and everybody else gets the scraps. This year they have made some difficult decisions and they have kind of shifted things a little bit more so that organisations outside of London are getting a chance and organisations that don't necessarily need to be in London are also getting a chance. I do believe that there are other issues involved, um, you know, for, for some of those London organisations and, and for them, I think it must be quite difficult. But I think that there has been a shift, especially over. You know, the last 10, 12 years that I've been in People Tree um, to work with you know groups in the north to um, promote the arts across the nation. And it does make sense. Like the arts have consistently done well in the country, even though we've had austerity and there were lots of arts funding cuts. Our creative industries have continued to kind of grow and provide, you know, GDP and things. And I think we've we've done a lot better than a lot of other industries actually and um, so yeah. it is really important that we continue to to invest in in the arts and in creative industries um, because they they can have really great rewards financially but also I think culturally and personally and interpersonally um, a lot of people really benefit from taking part in arts or um, arts events or um projects and being able to go to a local theater or go to a local um music hall or you know having something nearby that anchors you to your community that can be really really important because what we often see is that those spaces those businesses are often more than just producers of art and and creativity they're often hubs where people come and the ones that do it best are the ones where they become embedded within a community so that the community feels that they have ownership over that building yeah. that they are stakeholders in it and you, you can see that in a lot of um, venues in the north that being re- really creative in how they they run things you know they will have people organising meetings there coming there for things that you wouldn't necessarily expect Um, and that makes them a part of the community in a way that perhaps they weren't in the past and I think that's one of the benefits of you know spreading the cash around the country a bit more fairly I think
0: what would you say to people that um, underestimate the arts and publishing
1: Yeah, the thing is, literature is one of the least funded art streams. In fact, I think it is the least funded art streams. And and when you look at, you know, what goes into opera and ballet and things like that, we we do get a pittance, really. So I think that we are overlooked, even within the arts industry. Um, And, you know, I don't think we should be. I think if a if an opera can afford to charge 270 quid for a ticket and their customers will pay it, then maybe they could just up their prices to £300 a ticket and not, not get Arts Council money. That might be controversial, but I think yeah. if you're paying that amount of money already, they can probably afford to pay the difference that you no longer need the Arts Council funding. Mm. So I think we do need to, you know, recognise the importance of literature. Um, of literature. I think... It's really important to help people communicate who they are, how they feel about things. It's really helpful for people organising their thoughts. Writing has a, a hugely important role in people dealing with difficult things often, trying to make sense of things. All of that is really important. And more generally, the arts and creativity are hugely rewarding experiences for people of all ages. And They can bring a lot of joy. They can bring a lot of happiness. As I mentioned before, they can help build community. They give people more skills. They give people more confidence. Um, You know, a creative writing workshop might make you better um, at, you know, writing emails. It might make you a better secretary or a, a better administrator because there are other skills that you are learning there. The more effectively you can communicate, the more effectively you can communicate your needs and ask for those needs to be met. And that is really, really important. And people do engage with arts in lots of ways that they don't necessarily realise as well. They might not think of things as being arts-funded, for example, when they are, or they might not think of it as an artistic event or a creative event when perhaps it is. And I think that's part of why, you know, people don't always appreciate it. And I think from a political point of view, it's often popular to kind of bash um so-called elite kind of, kind of artifacty people. Um, and I think part of that is also about how we equip people with the tools to critique things and understand things and read things. Those are all really important things because if we can we can read a newspaper that says obvious untruths about migrants and we can detect the things that are false within that and we can see how they're trying to manipulate our emotions. And we can understand mm-hmm. how that's misleading. Kind of then that makes us a less pliable population for those in power who would exploit those things. And I think that sometimes is why certain politicians like to have a dig at the arts and people who do yeah. artistic and creative subjects. Yeah.
0: yeah, there's definitely so much to say on that topic. Um, exactly. Yeah, there's just so many strands. what what would you say that the future has in store for like the arts and especially Northern Black British and Caribbean arts and publishing in particular?
1: So it's always hard to say because there have been movements in the past to kind of make things more inclusive, more diverse and ultimately the effect of those and the benefit of those has usually only been as long as they continue to run them. Um, When when people get complacent and they think we don't need to invest in this anymore, that's when things tend to die out. And, you know, there have been lots of schemes over the years that have attempted to level the playing field. But then if everybody just goes back to how things were afterwards, um, then it's not affecting long term change. Part of that is to do with strategy and we need to have strategy um, in order to do that. Part of it is the nature of how things are funded, unfortunately, in that individual projects tend to be funded and those projects are not always joined up with each other. So it is hard to say how things will go in the future. I would like to think that the trends that we've seen in the recent years continue. But we can't take it for granted. I think if we take it for granted, there is the risk that it will go back. People in the 80s, for example, at certain times thought, oh, great, things are getting better for us. And then they they slid backwards and then they went back to where they were. Um, And so it's just incumbent upon us to make sure that we don't let that happen. Again, we have to remain vigilant. And if we're passionate about the arts, if we're passionate about diversity, inclusion, you know, Caribbean writing, Black British writing, those kinds of things, we need to be very outspoken about continuing to support those things um so that we can continue on the trajectory that we're on and we also need to be aware of those people who would try to take those things away from us those you know there, there, there are some coordinated campaigns at the moment usually behind the smoke screen of being grassroots organizations but they're not we've seen people challenge the society of authors yesterday luckily it was a very small minority of people trying to uh, to get their own way and these things, mm. Are often a pushback against um, progress. And sometimes they're successful, sometimes they're not, but they'll be more successful if we, you know, get lazy and complacent. So yeah. I hope things get better and that they continue to get better, and that we see, you know, a world where publishing is enriched by all the different voices of the people that um contribute to our society. Um, and I'm hopeful that the next generation. We'll push for that more and more. Uh, but also, I don't want to rule out the fact that sometimes things don't go the way we want them to. And sometimes things appear to go backwards.
0: Yeah, I really hope, you know, we stay on this like outward looking trajectory and things can start to well keep moving forward um, in that way. We're running out of time. Um, but before we wrap up, is there anything you'd like to plug or, or you know, platform? This could be an upcoming publication event movement um, anything really
1: yeah so we still have a couple of uh, online book club meetings coming up um, so those are going to be great there's Tanya Shirley coming up and then there's Kwame Dawes coming up next month um, so you can join those you get some discounts on our books you get to meet authors Tanya's might have passed by the time this podcast goes out but Kwame's should still be in time I think if you want to check that out We've got lots of exciting books coming up on our website But I'm going to plug my own because I am a writer, of course. So on the 1st of June, 2023, my debut collection of poems, *Patterflash*, is coming out from People Tree Press. Uh, and I hope to do lots of events to tour around the country and uh, visit festivals and things to read from that. So if you like things that are very Northern, very queer, very Black, very political... Um, then hopefully you'll like that collection
0: too. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. It was a delight to chat with you, hear about your experience. And I'm really excited to hear about the work of Northern Presses moving forward. Thank you so thank much. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Inside Publishing. I've been your host, Invision Davies. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more via Apple Podcasts and Spotify. See you next time.